Hey, Chris, did you know that uh, John Morant played for Murray State? Yeah, I heard a little bit about it. I asked plenty of questions about it, too, so I'm not without guilt with regards to that hype train. Did you know that Jabril Peppers didn't play in the uh, Orange Bowl a couple years back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, this is the Knowles 24-7 podcast. I figured I'd start the, the episode by needling uh, our listeners because that's the best way to do business is to piss off your customers. Right, Chris? Yeah. A rousing yeah. start here. All right. This is Brendan Sinone. I'm joined by Chris Nee over the Skype. And uh, we have a, a good amount to go over here in about 25, 30 minutes or so. We're going to talk about basketball. We're going to talk about spring football. Let's start with spring, Chris. We're at a midway point. We're at a hiatus. Uh, I did something the other day, kind of recapping uh, takeaways, things that we've learned. But I want to get your thoughts. Uh, the people are here for, for your opinion and, and your thoughts on covering uh, FSU through spring so far, through eight practices. I guess what are the overriding, overriding themes and, and takeaways that you've had so far? It's been a relatively quiet spring, in my opinion. You know, there's not a whole lot of storylines that kind of carry the weight of the spring you know usually quarterback battle certainly does that and then sometimes other position battles I mean to me it's the storylines are Blackman's taking control at the quarterback position figuring out the offensive line under new guidance along with a new offensive coordinator and then finding a replacement for Brian Burns on defensive line I think those are kind of the overriding themes I think the positives are that linebackers seem to be a bit of an improved group. Defensive back depth is certainly good. And I think they've moved some of the pieces around in the back half of the defense effectively with moving Hampsa down, Levante Taylor to more of a nickel safety role, stuff of that sort. And then offensively with the skill, it's mainly about the guys they need to be the dudes being the dudes. Cam Akers needs to show what we know Cam Akers is capable of at receiver. You need a few guys that kind of emerge and be the main go-tos. And we've seen that with some guys, and there's still other guys that we're waiting for it to come about with. All right. So let's go. I guess we'll kind of go position by position here. And you mentioned James Blackman being the guy. Um, and, and part of that's by default. He's He's the only eligible scholarship quarterback on the roster at this time. FSU, last we heard, was still in the process of of awaiting word on the waiver for Jordan Travis. But uh, but even then, it Jordan Travis st- kind of seems like FSU is the only school waiting on that, a waiver. Doesn't Everybody get a waiver? else just has theirs. I mean, it's shocking. Uh, do you think that's worth getting into right now, or another topic? Well, I I just sometimes sit and wonder how good FSU is at pursuing things like that. We we saw the David Kelly situation play out, and now we're dealing with Jordan Travis. And we look at other schools and other situations, and they play out quicker. I don't know if it's a bias against FSU or FSU doing a poor job of their pursuit of going about it, but I find it to be somewhat disheartening that it seems that FSU seems to struggle so mightily to get certain things approved. Let's stick with the bias against Florida State uh, narrative because we started off with John Moran and Jabril Peppers. So let's just keep 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 going with that. And I think FSU's FSU against the world. <laughs> I do think FSU's extremely thorough in in those processes and probably to a, a part where it's detrimental uh, in, in the information that they're trying to to give and getting the waiver and they're not as aggressive. Um, you know, some some schools take the you know, ask for forgiveness later approach, and I don't think that's what Florida State does. So uh, yeah, risk agree. reward with that and the other way around. And anyways. Back to the quarterback situation, it, it just there's not a number two pushing James Blackman right now. There's not a second quarterback that's capable of of really giving him uh, an adequate uh, feeling of pressure or anything like that. Uh, it's not to say that Nolan McDonald you know, doesn't have a, a role within this program in the next couple of years, but he's a redshirt freshman and a walk on. He's a walk on for a reason. Uh, he's limited at throwing the football. Jordan Travis struggled the first couple of days when we were there. Apparently he's picked it up a little bit in practice, but I still wonder 
if he has the requisite arm talent to, to really be someone again who pushes James Blackman. So this is really about Blackman pushing himself this spring. It's kind of the kind of the storyline I think uh, up to this point is, is how can Blackman kind of kind of improve within himself. I believe James that's is one of those guys that kind of is good at self competing. So I don't think it's such a great deal of an issue that there's lack of competition at the position. Obviously, you always want competition, but I think James is a guy that wants to be better than he previously was. So he aspires to be more. So he's kind of competing against himself. So I think they're okay in that regard. Their main situation is if he was to get hurt or arm fatigue sat in, sat uh, settled in, or something of that sort. I just don't think they have a quality second option after him, to put it plain and simple. And that's why getting Alex Hornibrook was significant to get someone with some semblance of experience and, and somewhat of a known commodity. Uh, a I don't true think he's going to insurance be... policy. Yeah, exactly. And we talked about that before. Um, but yeah, there's not a whole lot to take away at quarterback position that we haven't already discussed. I do think it's worth talking about going to running back now. You mentioned Cam Akers. James Blackman was on the. Um, the Willie Taggart talk show yesterday that, that they are going to have a couple times this spring. And, and he had noted that, that he thought that Cam Akers was too hard on himself last year. And I think we saw him get frustrated pretty easily when things weren't going well with the offensive line, uh, not, not blocking particularly well. And with him having the, the bum ankle, he was someone who, who pressed and, and wasn't running the way Florida State asked him to run. He was trying to force things by the end of the year, dude, like he was starting to show glimpses of, of what you saw the previous season. And, and looked explosive. And I think he's carried that over from what we've seen and heard through the spring. He's getting more. He certainly showed frustration last year and it played out on the field that he was frustrated. Truthfully, I think last year is very much a wash for the young man. He he didn't live up near to the hype of what he is. And which sucks for FSU fans when you only have him for probably three years, more than likely. It's not like a knock of, Oh, he's overhyped. He's not that good. No, he is that good. He is that talented. It's a matter of, he has to put it together and he has to succeed and he has to understand that not everything is always going to come easy to a guy who's immensely talented. And I think some of that maturation process has set in for him. I also think he's gotten a little leaner, which will probably mm-hmm. benefit when certainly the lower extremities are feeling a lot better than they felt last year when he had some of the issues with the ankle. So I think it's kind of coming together for him. There's still going to be moments where the offensive line is not worth a damn in front of him and kind of, you know, causes struggles that he can't overcome just because he doesn't have the ability to make holes for himself. But I think he'll handle that better than he did last year. I think he let last year kind of become one of those things where it started rolling downhill and he never knew how to halt it or stop it or, you know, about face and turn it around. He didn't handle it well. And that that's, you know, for a guy who's immensely talented and insanely capable of being great individually speaking, that's one of those things that I think comes with time. You know, you don't just instantaneously go from being the dude in high school and having a really good freshman year to having such a poor second year where you just understand how to handle it when it goes bad. And I think Cam had to learn that with self-reflection and dealing with his coaches and preparing for what will be hopefully a good junior campaign for the young man. Yeah, he he's someone, and I think he's willing, he has more or less admitted this, that he didn't do well with that adversity last year, again, regardless whether it was injury, whether it was not fitting within the scheme, whether it was the offensive line being poor in front of him. And this is someone who every single step of his career up to that point, Chris, like had been successful. He, he was considered maybe the best player ever to come out of Mississippi or one of like, he was a legend and someone who was well-regarded like back even to when he was in middle school and considered, you know, prolific and, and prodigious in, in that sense. So that's something you had to learn. You, you didn't mention leaner, and I think that's worth 
mentioning too is is he has looked a little bit more explosive from from the few times we've gotten to see him this spring. He looks a little bit a little bit thinner, and and I think that's serving him well right now. Maybe that's a better fit for for what they want within the scheme, where where you're playing more in space. But he he does look a little bit quicker. He's actually participating in the Knowles drills, which is which I think is encouraging because they were trying to limit him last year. Get him more at bats in in that sense, and I think that's that's good because you need him to be the leader uh, by by example there. So yeah, so the way he's carrying himself on the field too, it reminds me of what he was like. You know, prior to kickoff of last year, As which a is a guy who's yeah. a relatively happy-go-lucky dude, who's a good teammate, tries to be a good leader, makes an effort to be a leader, and that went away during the season last year. He looked downright miserable by the midway point of last season, and I think it was just a piling-on effect for him where he didn't know how to handle it. It's good to see him back in a you know good headspace because he's obviously a kid that if this team's going to have success, mm-hmm. he's going to be a big part of it offensively. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget that, like when he was a freshman, uh, he was holding court uh, at practice. Like, like a veterans would would kind of flock to him and would gravitate towards him. He had that kind of personality. I think that's always who he's kind of been. In many ways, embodied what we saw last year at Florida State, which was the high expectations, a ton of hype. And then Virginia Tech game happens, you get punched in the mouth, and and everyone just looked lost and and sad and mopey. And and Acres, I think, kind of embodied that. But anyways, l- let's move on to wide receivers. Uh, I think for me, the, the two big takeaways, Tamarian Terry looks like exactly what we thought he was based on what we saw last season. And, and I think the the next two guys in line that are going to probably be the, the go-tos this year are going to be the two slot receivers. That's Kayshawn Helton and DJ Matthews. Yeah, and I'm interested who steps up beyond those guys. You know, I mm-hmm. want to see if Trayshawn Harrison becomes that dude, if Keith Gavin finally puts something together on the field for a season, or, you know, maybe a Jordan Young emerges. He's a guy that's had a couple flashes during preseason here, or I'm sorry, to spring here. Um, so I'm very interested in that. But with Terry, you know, people ask, well, is it a good thing that he looks so good against FSU's DBs? Nah, Tamorian is just that good. He's, yeah. he's, uh, he, he makes big plays consistently. And him and Blackman have an excellent chemistry, and it exudes itself on the field when they're out there practicing and playing. So I think he's set for a massive year, and he's a guy that can really help open up the offense because he is such a vertical threat. So, yeah, I feel confident about him. And then, you know, kind of the – swing to tight ends, but still at the same time, a receiver, Cam McDonald's a guy who I think is going to have an impact on the passing game. And he's almost viewed as a receiver more so than a tight end in some ways. And, uh, you know, I think he kind of will open up the middle for them. So I'm going to give him that big target, especially on a short yardage late down. So like a third down and five type situation. He's the kind of guy that can sit down the middle and give them an option or even stretch the field and loosen up the middle for something underneath. So I think he's a big piece of the passing game when we're talking receivers and guys getting downfield. And I think Trey McKitty is trying to put it together. We see some days where he's really good, some days where he drops it, does things that are slightly disappointing. But it's clear that McKitty is trying to come through with kind of that money year in that role. But I think McDonald's a guy that's really emerged as another big receiving option for him. And I think we touched on it before, but McDonald, someone they move around in practice, like he'll be with the receivers and in some individual drills and he'll be doing blocking stuff with the tight ends and others and he'll move back and forth. So I think that's a decent indication of, of how they plan to use him, if if not immediately, at least down the road, too. So, all right, offensive line, uh, Chris, you and I spent a ton of time talking about that on the last pod we had together two weeks ago. So I, 
not a ton to go back over. I, I do think that this spring has been a ton about trying to reinstall confidence. It's funny. Like you see the GAs and, and some of the staffers are just, just cheering on every single rep. The offensive line does. This is about building them up right now. And the linemen have said that Randy Clements has been ultra positive and, and, and just pretty relaxed and easygoing. I mean, not that he's, he's lacks a days ago there, but, but he's about emphasizing the positive, and moving off the negative pretty quickly, correcting and getting it through. Yeah. That's, what, that's the big takeaway for me is that this is about confidence right now. I think the gassing them up thing is no more evident than with Juwan Williams. Yeah. Um, Juwan's one of those guys that he, he still loses some reps really badly, but he's also won more reps this spring than we saw him win all of last during the season, preseason in practice setting. And when he does, they celebrate it like it's New Year's Day. I mean, you know, they're clearly trying to instill some level of confidence into that guy. And he's a guy that doesn't seem to have an engine that just revs automatically. You know, some guys are competitive. Bavion Johnson is emotionally invested in playing offensive line. You don't see that with Juwan Williams quite as much. And I think it's just simply personality. I don't think it's a matter of not wanting to or not being engaged. I think he just doesn't outwardly show it. I feel like they're trying to kind of force that out of Juwan, trying to get him fired up about being a better football player more consistently. And, uh, you know, they're going to keep trying to tap that well and get some oil out of it, and we'll see if it actually works out. I think the biggest thing with the line to me is that you're starting to see moments with Jalen Goss and Chaz Neal as tackles and Christian Armstrong mm-hmm. on the interior of those young guys giving you a little something and maybe being able to help, not necessarily immediately, but down the road, having some value to the roster. And Chaz Neal is an interesting case study. I mean, he was raw and truthfully quite awful as a high school player in the sense of being consistent down to down. But he has that great frame and he's kind of put together and he's put on good weight since he's got to FSU. He's very much a case study of how much can coaches and a program develop a guy into something that has value. And it's kind of fun watching Chaz come along. I mean, he's he's I don't want to turn him into something great because he's not close to being great at this point in his career. But there's signs of development coming along with him in practice. And he's certainly a guy, unlike Jawan, who's got a little bit of a competitive engine to himself that shows itself out there, even though he's a little bit, from what I understand, a little bit of a strange bird off the field. Um, he, but yeah, I think, uh, with Chaz, Chris, I think that's the biggest thing for him. Is And we heard it late last year. It's like he actually tries like to be yeah. physical and he, he and that maybe helps with him having played defense before but we had heard that late last season same thing you just said that he's super raw super unrefined needs to keep adding weight but the fact that he cares uh, about the end result and wants to be physical and is willing to get up in there and, and, and hit someone you know that gives you a baseline to work with and i think that speaks to how how far gone this offensive line was last year that, that we're talking about just someone wanting to be physical as being a, a, a positive thing. Like that should be a, a baseline for every offensive lineman. The fact that it isn't something that's quite there yet, I think is, is pretty telling, but are you gonna have to get a tattoo of, of Chaz Neal anywhere? <laughs> if, if he does start for FSU, if Chaz Neal was a first round pick, maybe I'll get a tattoo of him beside the Leonard tattoo when they win the national title. Don't spoiler alert. We're going to get there in the second part of the podcast, but I want to talk about your tattoos. Yeah. I have one on each cheek and people just massively confused <laughs> when they see me butt naked. Right. Anything else on the offensive line? Sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, it, it's a group that I don't want to turn into more than it is. It's still certainly under development. I think Randy Clements has kind of struck the right chord with those guys and they like him. I think he's a little bit of a departure from Greg in the sense of what the guys stand it like about Greg. 
And I think he has the coaching chops to make him pretty good. And the nice thing there more than anything is there's uh, chemistry. There's just, they're in sync with one another when it comes to Kendall Browse and Mary Clements with what the line is trying to accomplish. So I don't think there's a whole lot of, we go from working as a unit to then working as 11. And there's like, well, we were doing this as a unit. Why aren't we doing this as 11? I don't think there's any of that. It kind of knocks on that wall makes it far more where things exchange very easily and very well for guys. So there's, there's not essentially two camps of learning where you're doing it as a group and then you're doing it as a team. I think it's very much the group stuff very much falls right in line with what they're doing as a team. And I think that's a positive. And that's something I don't think we had a great grasp. That was that much of a, there was that much of a disconnect connect within the offense in terms of installing it until middle to late part of last season. Obviously, maybe maybe in hindsight, the results at, should have should have spoke for it. But it at became the same clear time, about it. I think that's some finger pointing last year of trying yeah. to explain away why you were five and seven. I, you know, I, I, I don't think they were that far apart. I just think in this case, it's two guys that have worked together for so long that they kind of finish each other's sentences. Regardless of it, it looks more cohesive this this spring. And, yeah. and I think that's. That's the important part moving forward. So let's do a speed round with the defense because we want to get to basketball. We don't want to keep this too long. Uh, real quick, defensive end replacing Brian Burns. Am I wrong to be fairly concerned about what they have at defensive end right now and being able to find a way to adequately? You're not replacing Brian Burns in one season. We saw that with Demarcus yeah. Walker a couple of years ago. That's impossible. But I don't know who's going to step up and whether they're going to be able to actually do like a a real by committee deal. I don't know if that's in the cards right now. Yeah. I think we need to quit looking at it as replacing Brian Burns. They're not going to replace that production. Certainly not with an individual. And I don't even think they really do it as a group. I think the key is for them to be good situationally as defensive ends. They need to have guys that can help pressure to pass or support against the run and kind of mix it up. I think Dennis Briggs is a big piece against the run. I think he's an excellent edge holder who can finish plays effectively. The key is for a Robinson or a Kando or even Xavier Peters to step up as that elite pass rusher, the guy that they can kind of rely upon when they need that guy to come off wide and kind of make the pocket disappear. And in that case, it's, you know, Kando living up to what he's supposed to be and Robinson developing into what he was hoped to be. And Peter's, you know, just kind of using that skill set of being an elite edge rusher to some degree, um, at least in the high school ranks of them, somebody in that trio kind of taking it and running with it and then getting support from the other two. Um, and it would be very nice if, you know, say Kando emerges in that sense and you can move Robinson over the other side as your more primary down lineman, you know, and then bring Briggs in for the run support. Uh, you know, fi- finding the right mix, the right combo, I think is the most important thing. But I agree that there's not a reason right now to say, oh, man, they're 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 kind of, you know, clicking and it's working well. I think there's improvements being made. I think there's a clear cut for guys that they're going to lean upon. It's just a matter of I think another guy needs to really emerge as being the capable elite player they need at that position. I think Briggs is a guy who we know is certainly going to be consistent and that you can rely upon. I just don't know if he's got the complete game as a defensive end to be the elite guy they need. I think it needs to be Kando more than anybody mm-hmm. or Robinson, but I think Kando is the main piece of that puzzle. Yeah, now we're never time for for Robinson and Kando. I mean, at this point in their careers, Robinson's a redshirt junior and Kando's a, a true junior. Um, so they're they're beyond the halfway point of their college careers. It, it's it's time for those guys. They're gonna have every opportunity this year, but they have to do it. 
All right, defensive line, our defensive tackles. Marvin <laughs> Wilson's really, really, really good. We knew that uh, Corey Durden projected to be the starter. Going to be interested to see how he does with more at-bats, more reps. Uh, he, I, I sure. love I love Durden. Yeah. I think Durden's got one of the best motors on the entire damn team. I mean, the dude, he breeds it. He plays hard. He wants it. I think him beside Wilson's a really nice combo. Um, you know, there might be some place where he gets washed out of against bigger guys and stuff. It might happen here and there. But in general, I feel very confident what Corey Durden brings to the uh, line as a whole. Yeah, I, I just want to see and this isn't even a knock. It's just a not known is, is what happens when you go from being a rotational guy, whether energy is really, really helpful and you're getting to go against guys when they're a little bit more fatigued versus now you have to do it every single down. It, it just, yeah. that remains to be seen. Uh, we have Robert Cooper coming off uh, the bench and I think we all know what he can do and, and really like what, what he showed as a freshman, but again, bigger role he's stepping into more reps. Uh, how's fatigue going to be? Same thing with Durden, even same thing with Marv. Like all these guys are taking another step up in terms of in terms of how they're going to be used this year. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Yep. Um, linebackers, uh, you mentioned them in the open. I yeah, think the floor I, is, is much better, right, Chris? And, and Yeah, I think the depth is better. I think the basic, what they bring to the table is better. I think McCray is a guy that can contribute immediately as a freshman. I think moving Hamza down into the star role with them has been an improvement as a whole for that group. You know, the three guys you leaned on a lot last year bring to the table. Truthfully, still don't see much from Adonis Thomas or Josh Brown from a practice setting, so I'm not really expecting much from either of them. I think Emmett Rice will be a nice addition, a guy that was very limited last year coming off an injury. I Are think you club has, anyone with that with that <laughs> club. <laughs> I don't it. know how much longer he'll have the fake arm, but I, I think Emmett's a guy that can kind of add some spice to that position, be a true shoot it off the edge, come through a hole, hit the guy, kind of clean up, end the play kind of guy. I think Emmett brings some of that to that group, which is something they certainly lack last year, the ability to just truly end plays. And then D-Jack's kind of the consistent go-to in the middle. And then Jaleel, excuse me, Jaleel McCray is kind of the, I don't even want to say wild card, but I think he's someone who's going to work his way into some sort of significance this season. Yeah. Some what we've heard from him this spring. He's he's always around the ball, dude. Like for, for a true freshman who's only been here for a couple of weeks or months, um, I, I really like his upside. And McCray to me has kind of some of those would-be qualities of a guy that you can tell is very much like he he's mentally prepared to contribute at this level. Like the competitive nature you need to have where you can put a bad play behind you and move on and compete and try to play. He has those qualities. So I don't think he's a guy that's going to be an emotional roller coaster if he's out there on the field where if he struggles or has issues that you're done, like you can't run him out there the rest of the day. I don't think he's that type of guy. I think he's prepared to handle the ups and downs that comes with playing defense. All right, secondary real quick. Uh, let's see. I think we both really like what we've seen from Asante Samuel Jr. If anything, yeah, he's kind of emerged as, as the dude in, in that secondary pretty pretty quickly. How, how It's interesting how fast that's happened, but uh, he's he's what he's been built to be coming in as a recruit. Kind of had to feel his way around a little bit last year, had some ups and downs, but kind of I admired that he always remained consistent, even, even if he had a bad rep. He'd come back out, never really back down. That's exactly what they wanted from him. That's what he's now showing in the spring, but he has more experience and he has more confidence and that's enabling him to, to frankly talk a lot of trash, <laughs> which he loves doing. Yes. He's uh, good at it. I think the key to the secondary is simply one, a better pass rush consistently, obviously helps the guys in the secondary, but more so than anything, it's a matter of that group, not having just blown assignments. BAs can't happen. You got to have good safety play, which kind of went to hell last year for them, especially when Stanford moved the corner. Their safety play was quite atrocious. 
Um, I think moving Levante back has helped kind of solidify that a little bit. I think when Jaden Lars would be as fully healthy, that will help that even further. Mm-hmm. I think they got a nice mix there. I love Akeem Den at safety. I think he's an excellent, excellent center fielder type. He could easily play corner, but I think he's excellent at safety role, especially with guys that he's working around. I think you got two corners that you can put on an island and feel comfortable with. So I think as a whole, the composition of that group is much better. And I think the, uh, the confidence issues that came with last year, I think for the most part are gone. And it sounds like Levante has broken through that wall of last year where injuries and just poor play caught up to him. And he was sort of worthless on the back half of the season in large part because he was not healthy in the back half mm-hmm. of the season. Yeah. And he, I mean, he, he ended up not playing there after what, after the Clemson game, I think. Um, so yeah, it, Anything you get out of him, I think, is going to be a plus at this point because we weren't sure if he was going to be back or not for a while. So if you get solid, consistent starting reps from him at safety, that that's a win. Uh, you mentioned Akeem Dent. Yeah, that kid's – he's what he's been built to be. Uh, he's what they've hyped him up to be, I think, so far. You can just tell the range he has, the instincts. Uh, he doesn't back down. He's willing to be physical. To steal one of your favorite cliches, he checks all the boxes. So, uh, Sure does. <laughs> all right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here. I don't think we're gonna have sponsors. Don't get too excited, Chris, but we're, we're going to have a quick break to at least sponsor some, some other uh, podcasts within the 24 seven network. And then, uh, then we'll be right back to talk a little bit about basketball. All right. That was, uh, I think we'll see how the magic of editing works, but maybe a smooth transition. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right, Chris basketball. Did you know that Jordan Mora played this weekend? Yeah, I heard it was very funny. The, uh, I had quite a few friends. I had some family. I have a lot of family in Boston. So I had some family come down from Boston and some friends come into the area and try to go to games. And we're all sitting there thinking, oh, you know, a couple teams lose. The ticket market drives itself down because it's more flooded with tickets. That that didn't happen. I think Morant was a huge reason why that didn't happen. It also didn't help that Purdue, Villanova were still in the tournament because both of them had a healthy amount of their fan base there, especially Villanova. Villanova fans travel, you know, on par with some of the best in the country. So, How was Hartford, by the way? Uh, it's a cesspool. It's no offense to anybody with Hartford ties or at loser. I was born in Hartford. I have no interest in ever returning to Hartford, Connecticut, unless the Whalers come back. Brass Bonanza. Excellent steakhouse called Max's there. I will I will shed a little love on that. All right. So you got steak, you got to watch basketball. No one's no one's crying for you. All right. So let's go let's start with the Vermont game. Oh, we're gonna work our way into Gonzaga, but we're gonna do like a, just a chronological your view of the weekend. Uh, the Vermont game was fairly dicey for a while. They gave them everything they wanted and then some for, for a good portion of that game. Well, I mean, it was basically a home game for Vermont, um, which was real nice of the NCAA to award the lower seed like that. Did, did you but, see Ben and Jerry in the, in the stands? <laughs> yeah. Did you enjoy your uh, Twitter feedback on that from folks? Yeah, I thought it was positive. Was it not? Yeah, Vermont goes 16 for 32 from deep. That's basically what keeps them in the game. FSU wins 76, 69. They controlled it in the last quarter of that game. Um, you know, Terrence Mann kind of, in my opinion, was a bit passive in the first 20. He was excellent in the second half. He finished with 19 in that game. I thought he played very well. When Terrence wants to take over a game, he very much can. I mean, he had 19 and eight, eight boards in that game, which was huge for FSU. Fee, who's been kind of a breakout star of the NCAA tournament nationally. I mean, we knew he was good, but nationally, people are starting to realize how good he is. He had 21 and 10 in that game. FSU had a plus six advantage on the boards. I was kind of surprised it wasn't even more than that. 
But I thought Vermont did a good job at first of taking away the lob game. I think FSU wanted to go in that game and do a lot of lobs early on, and Vermont simply didn't allow them to do that. Vermont also obviously hot from the perimeter. They only hit seven of 21 shots from inside the three-point line, so 33%, but they hit 50% from beyond the arc, and that's really what kind of made it a game. But truthfully, FSU controlled the second half for the most part and very much had that game in hand down the stretch. Anthony Lamb was good, but I thought FSU did an excellent job against him. He finished with 16, but he was just 4 for 13 from the field. He really had to work for what he wanted to do. You know, I thought the staff overall kind of showed their muscles with a defensive game plan over the weekend with what they did against both teams and their best players. People complain about 16 for 32 from the perimeter, but a hell of a lot of those 16 they made were actually well contested. There were a few that they got off screens where a guy went the wrong way or there was, you know, a transition bucket. But for the most part, the 16 they made were contested. It wasn't like FSU was just conceding the three-point line to them. They did not do that. It's tough to go 16 of 32, even, you know, in warmups when you're not being contested, like to shoot 50% from beyond the arc is, is an anomaly. Yeah. And regardless of game plan, Vermont, I think averaged seven to eight, three pointers made a game, I believe coming into that game, if I remember correctly. So yeah, they're a good perimeter shooting team, but they're not expected to be that good of a perimeter shooting team either. All right. So let's, let's go then to, to Murray state and that game, you know, had an even more prolific opponent in, in Morant and FSU again, really, uh, really forced his teammates to try to step up. And, and one point in the thread, Chris, cause I don't, I haven't watched FSU basketball in nearly as close as you have this year, but Murray state's trying to run up and down with Florida state. And I asked you like, is this, is this something they actually want to be doing with Florida state's depth and, and length? That was, it was strange to see them try to try to extend the game in, in that sense. And I think that ultimately kind of, kind of derailed them pretty early on in the game. Yeah, that, that happened after the first media timeout. Um, FSU had kind of come up sloppy in the first four-plus minutes of that game. And, uh, you know, a lot of bad passes, bad interior feeds. They were kind of not in it. And Morant had hit, I believe, five in a row, kind of open up the game. And he was hot. But then, for whatever reason, Murray State thought it would be a great idea to try to get an attract meet with a really deep, talented FSU team. And FSU whooped that butt in transition. Um, they went nine for 13 or 14 in that stretch. You saw Raekwon hit a couple threes. You just saw FSU get going. They got that juice flowing, and they, they jumped out to a lead, and, man, they raced Murray State out of the gym. I think Murray State was kind of fluffed up to some degree because of what they did to Marquette, and I watched a healthy portion of that Murray State-Marquette game in person, and they beat the ever-loving crap out of Marquette. But here's the thing about Marquette. Marquette quits. They, beyond Marcus Knight, they're not a very good basketball team right now. And Murray State took advantage of that. And Morant was excellent in that game. He was a scorer. He was a distributor. He did a good job of grabbing boards. He did a good job of getting them into transition. Here's the issue. FSU is much deeper, much more talented, and much more engaged of the basketball team than Marquette. And FSU showed that. Help side defense was a key for FSU in that game. Morant was going to get his. They accepted that going in, but they did not want him to get his and create for others, and they took that away. You know, he finishes with 28 points, but he took 21 shots. He has five rebounds, which is far below his season average, and he only has four assists a day after or two days after having, what, 16 or 17 against Marquette. So, and how many turnovers, Chris? Uh, let's see. He had 
two turnovers. Okay. But as a team, they had 13 and they only mm-hmm. had seven assists, which for them is a drastic flip of the regular stats with those two. So it, it was impressive. FSU beat them by 28. It felt more like 250 points. Um, it was truthfully awesome to watch. It was the best game FSU has played since the Florida game. All right, so we're going to do a quick preview of Gonzaga real quick, uh, putting you on the spot. Do you know what Phil Crawford's status is for this week coming up? Obviously, that was kind of the storyline that emerged from the weekend and in the passing of his father. Uh, that was a national story, uh, something that was really touching when you saw the way FSU players supported Phil. And I think worth something or something worth talking about for a couple minutes. Yeah, I was in the locker room when Phil got the message. I believe his mother or somebody via his mother's phone delivered it to him. That's a horrible moment to hear a young man just emotionally, you know, drop down so much in such a split second. It was tough to hear, tough to kind of see transpire. And then we left the locker room out of respect. All the media was asked to leave, and obviously we chose to do so. And we spoke to Coach Hamilton in the hallway. But it was so fresh and new that I don't think beyond myself and a couple other guys on the beat who understood what was going on with Phil and his father this year knew exactly what had just happened. So Leonard did not address it at that immediate point. We're talking literally minutes after. Minutes after. You, know, yeah. just found out. you were kind so, of, uh, you were emotional from that too. That was disturbing. For not, not a, I wasn't emotional, but I, I, one, I felt horrible for unsettling, Phil. Unsettling, yeah. I mean, I know how difficult of a year it's been for Phil on the court and off the court. He's dealt with so much. I mean, his father's battled that for, I believe, almost a decade or more at this point. But the last two to three years have been especially rough. Very difficult for him, very difficult for the family. Phil's had a lot on his shoulders, and he's handled it like a true professional. Phil's a great dude. He's a very nice young man. He's an excellent teammate, very well liked by the guys that he's friends with on that team and that he's teammates with. And it's just tough to see a guy kind of have so much on his shoulders for so long, and it just all gives in that moment because something so devastating and traumatic had just happened. Mm -hmm. So obviously not fun, not enjoyable. But it says so much about that team and the family and the 18 strong with the way they handled it. They were outstanding with one another. The support system's phenomenal. You know, the pins were created by people within the staff. They worked very hard to flip an old pin and turn it into the MC pins. The black Velcro for the stripe to honor his father was something that they came up. They got it all approved by the NCA. They they met a lot. They spoke a lot. They discussed, you know, the end of life, the difficult moment. There were guys in that locker room that had never experienced something like that. And they 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 didn't, you know, suppress it to concentrate on basketball. They they took to it. They lived it. They dealt with it. They talked about it and they played for it and they played for Phil. And first and foremost, Terrence Mann deserves a boatload of praise. He's an unbelievable human being. Anybody that saw the way he supported Phil during the uh, pregame color presentation was unbelievable. And it it was just, you understand why they play so well as a team because they do care about each other. And, uh, and if our listeners are interested, uh, FSU or sorry, Kofor was able to start a GoFundMe page and it was approved. I think it's raised 25,000. No, last check as of last night, it was at about 52 K. Was it really? Yeah. It's impressive. Um, a lot of great people have given a lot of money. Danny Cannell is a guy that I saw gave a thousand. I believe President Thrasher gave five hundred. 
saw some other names looking through those that donated that, you know, or people that care a great deal about FSU, FSU basketball. But there's also a ton of names of people that you don't know. And I'm sure there's a lot of names of people that have nothing to do with FSU basketball or Phil Cofer who just care about the young man. So, yeah, it's doing well. It's over halfway goal. Uh, you know, I challenge anybody that hasn't given give to it. I think it's right to do. Um, you know, like I said, Phil's a great guy. He's very good family. The disease that took his father was horrendous and by all descriptions had been, you know, horrendous battle. That was horrible to watch come to an end. And, you know, as for his status for the original question, uh, Leonard was on John Rothstein's College Hoops Today podcast yesterday. He also was on the Jeff Cameron show later in the day. In both instances, he said he's almost certainly not with them for the Sweet 16 game. Very unlikely he's with them for the Elite 8 game if they were to advance. If they made it to Minneapolis for the Final Four, they would reassess the situation and see. But Leonard, you know, went out of his way to point out that we know where Phil is. Phil knows where we are, and we're both supporting each other in this situation. So, you know, I think it's kind of kind of be up to Phil to say when he's ready to definitely come back. But Coach C.Y. Shelton Young, assistant coach, and Leonard Hamilton flew back to Atlanta with uh, Phil on Sunday morning and helped him get back to his mother for the funeral and arrangements and just dealing with the mourning process of all this. So, you know, I, I I was I think highly of FSU basketball and people involved with it. I was extremely impressed by him over the weekend with this, not just what they did on the court, but by far what, how they handled off the court. All right. No way to do a smooth transition, but let's talk a little bit about this upcoming week with Florida State basketball and what they have on, on the docket. And that's number one seed Gonzaga. What's it going to be, Chris? Thursday at seven? Thursday at 7.09 p.m. on CBS. All so, right. Yep, and that's a, uh, well, let's start. I mean, FSU beat Gonzaga last year. And uh, what round was it? Was it the Sweet it 16? Sweet 16, yeah. All it's right. out the same way. FSU could also play in the Elite Eight, possibly Michigan, who they lost to last year in the Elite Eight. So it's very funny that the NCAA says they don't play for storylines, but somehow here we are. <laughs> so third round, Sweet 16, Honda Center in Anaheim, California. Thursday at 7.09, that's Eastern, so 4.09 out there on the West Coast. FSU will face Gonzaga. I think the biggest thing is don't fall in the trap of thinking, oh, they beat them last year. Now, last year's Zags were very soft, and FSU kind of punched them in the mouth, and they never recovered. I think this year's team is much more of a physical bunch for Mark Few. Um, very talented bunch, and their starting five kind of consists of uh, Rory Hutchimore, who averages just shy of 20 per game with about seven boards. Brandon Clark's their other big. He's got 17 per game and eight. They've got the size to kind of match up with FSU. Their guard plays very good. Zach Norvell, 15.1 per game. Excellent player. He's a guy that FSU did a good job against last year. They go about seven to nine deep, so we'll go, we'll call it eight. Um, so they can match up to FSU in some ways with depth. You know, they're not one of these teams that's five or six deep. They do lean pretty heavy on their starting five. Um, last year when they played FSU, they were without their one of their reserve forwards. Tilly, he's back. He's playing for them. So that's kind of a big addition that we didn't see in the game last year. I think the key for FSU with facing this year's eggs is just to, one, obviously keep turnovers down. You can't give that kind of team extra possessions. But more than anything, effective around the boards, offensive boards, putbacks, 
do a good job of competing every single possession on both ends of the court. It's got to be a game you're probably going to have to grind out. I don't think either team can run the other out of the gym with the composition of the two teams, but I think it can be a heck of a game. I think the line right now is about seven on the Zags. I would take FSU with that line all damn day. I don't think it's that kind of game. I mean, obviously, free throws can happen late, and it kind of changes the scoreboard. But just looking at the two teams, how they're composed, how they play, you know, I, I think it can be a really, really tight game that's kind of swung by a possession or two at the end. Can we uh, can we do a I'll make a promise to you, Chris, if if they win, we'll do a basketball specific podcast between uh, between that game and then the, the Elite Eight game. How about that? Yeah, I'm down. I'll be uh, free out there on Friday. I fly out Wednesday to cover it and I'll be there. I'll be with them until they're not playing basketball anymore or I'm getting a tattoo. And that's the final thing I want to talk about before we wrap up. <laughs> is that a, is that going to happen? And for people who don't know, I think we talked about it last year on the podcast. Chris Nee will get a tattoo of Leonard Hamilton's face on one of his butt cheeks, which feels inherently disrespectful to both of you <laughs> to be, it, to be honest. It's nice, smooth canvas. It is. And it's a lot of canvas too. There's a lot of margin for error. And, uh, and yeah, they, they ended up winning it all and they're not too far away from it. So, uh, yeah. Would, have you thought about what, what butt cheek? I would probably go with the right one. I don't know why that is. I'm right hand dominant. Maybe that's why. And the other one's safe for Chaz Neal. All right, cool. Yes. Yes. All right. So for the rest of the week, uh, stick, you know, follow Chris and he's going to have all the hoops coverage. I will be, uh, be covering spring practice resumes on Wednesday. There's don't a pro day on Thursday. Well, yeah, pro day on Thursday. Uh, I don't know how much coverage we're going to have. We're going to have some, uh, but there's frankly not a ton to talk about there. So, yeah, I mean, the main storyline there is Brian Burns and I'm not real convinced he's going to do a whole heck of a lot there. I don't know why he would. Combine. Yeah. He, he killed the combine. He, he aced that test. I don't know why you would, would do it again. Uh, maybe do some position drills, depending on what teams are there. I'm interested to see the turnout. I it's think there's some storylines. It's an important day for Patrick because yeah, Jacques Patrick, because he wasn't at the combine. Uh, Nooney needs to to ramp up that four seven forty yard dash. Who cares about Nooney? Oh my God! Um, <laughs> <what>? you got <laughs> me off that game. I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> so we're gonna try to do a, another podcast later in this week with uh, Newberg and myself because he was at the IMG's uh, the seven on seven tournament. Jeff Sims was there. Florida State quarterback. You well, I was thinking about getting Zach too. He seemed a little bit more reluctant when I asked him about it uh, about a week ago. I missed this morning. Yeah, I don't think he got the Stephen King reference from like 30 years ago, dude. But hey, you can download the audiobook. You're really derailing the podcast. I'm here for you. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll try to do one with Josh because uh, Michael Redding was on campus. Uh, there, there's actually a fair amount of recruiting stuff to go over. Yeah, so I think it's worth doing this Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Not talented receiver Jeff Sims is supposed to be there. Breaking news. Yeah, we're so, we're yeah. expecting Jeff Sims to be in Tallahassee on on Wednesday, so they'll we'll have, have a, something. They'll have a sprinkling of recruits in between now and the spring game, and then obviously they're hoping to have a large group on April six. Yeah, guys. So uh, so be on the lookout for that podcast. We'll put on the message board like the day when we're recording it and when we expect to put it up. But uh, but anyways, thanks for listening. I know we said twenty five to thirty minutes. We're going on about forty right now. So uh, status you know that's pretty standard here is that we ramble and i ramble and chris rambles and cliches and tattoos and butts and guys with the Knowles 24 7 podcast this is brendan sinone chris thanks for joining me safe travels buddy guys remember subscribe five-star reviews on itunes that really helps out we'll uh, we'll talk to you later this week